begin reading in verse 8. So you can turn there now if you'd like. Bit of an introduction, though. On June 2nd, 1953, uh, Queen Elizabeth was officially crowned at her coronation ceremony. As you likely know, England is a place of long and rich tradition, and a lot of those have to do with the coronation. So it was held at Westminster Abbey, same place had been held for 900 years uh, prior to her coronation. The journey from Buckingham Palace, where the royals lived, to the Westminster Abbey uh, had a procession of about 30,000 people, mostly soldiers, but others as well, uh, leading there and coming back. More than 8,000 guests attended the ceremony itself. It was composed of nobility from 129 nations and territories. She wore a crown that had 1,333 diamonds in it, and that was just the crown she wore on the way there. When she was officially crowned, it was a crown that was more than 300 years old. It was solid gold that weighed almost five pounds. Unlike every other coronation ceremony, though, this was the first to be fully televised. Some of you may have seen grainy black and white images uh, from, from this. You can watch it on YouTube today if you're so inclined to spend three hours this afternoon. But it was televised over the strong objection of many of the traditionalists on the planning committee. They didn't like the idea of cameras within this kind of traditional, what they viewed as sacred event. And so they were okay with cameras showing the procession in and in, in, in facing what they called the area west of the organ screen, which referred to a particular area of the abbey, but not the ceremony itself. It was to be reserved, they thought, for the privileged elites, the nobility. But a modern faction won out within this planning committee that wanted to make this accessible not just to the nobility but to, but to all the people uh, of the country. And so they did, except for a very small part of the ceremony itself, uh, the majority of it inside the abbey as well was, was televised. And it was watched by 20 million people in England. That was a time when the population of England was 36 million people. And, of course, in the 1950s, there weren't nearly as many televisions as they are now. Uh, another 11 million listened on the radio. And television then allowed all classes of people in the UK to watch, to watch this event that had previously been reserved for nobility. Well, the birth of King Jesus, born King of the Jews, as we read last week, didn't have the same human fanfare. The wise men did come, although later, and they brought gifts fit for a king, but otherwise it was overlooked by the privileged elites of the time. But the people that were invited to come were anything but elite, and that's what we'll see today. They were these humble shepherds. So many of our Christmas songs talk about them if some other figures maybe don't make it into the manger scene, the nativity scene that's sitting on your piano, I bet the shepherds do, right? We, we think of them there. And there's the next figures in our series here on the supporting cast of Christmas. And these humble shepherds, they remind us of the 
shepherding work of the Messiah. And remind us of how broad the invitation is to come to Christ. So we're going to read through this now in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, just to summarize. Uh, this recounts again what we read recently in Matthew of a decree going out from Caesar Augustus to travel. Oh, sorry, not in Matthew, but in, but in Luke of this decree going out from Caesar Augustus for them to go back to their hometowns for a census. And while they were there, the days were completed. It says in verse 6, for her to give birth. In verse 7, Jesus himself is born. And that picks up then in verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today... In the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Our outline will just simply walk through the, the narrative. We'll make observations along the way. Ah, I meant to show this picture. This is, this is from the coronation itself. That's, the, that's her, it's her gigantic solid gold crown. Skipping over that, though, for now. All right, so what we just read. An angel announced the good news of the Savior's birth to the shepherds. We're going to see this really in two parts in the narrative, and we'll spend most part in, in this first point, this angelic announcement. Came to these shepherds, and what we know about shepherds and the act of shepherding is that it was a poor, marginal, difficult occupation. We think of it, and, and rightly so, with kind of some... I don't know, some maybe nostalgic beauty because of how much Scripture talks about shepherding. And I'll come to that point here in a moment. But we can't overlook the fact that as an occupation, it, it was primarily done by the poor. It, it was marginal in that they tended to be kind of on the margins of society. They had literally had to live outside the city and be with their sheep 24-7. And it was difficult. It was a difficult, difficult type of labor because it was it was menial. It was just kind of repetitive. They were made ceremonially unclean by the conditions of the work of caring for these animals. Uh, they were unable to stop working for the Sabbath. The sheep needed care seven days a week. They couldn't come into the city to sleep at night. They were out with the sheep. Um, it, was, it was kind of an isolating position and a difficult position. Um, and not really much has changed. 
Uh, it's estimated there's probably 1,500 shepherds continuing to work within the U.S., many of them actually in Idaho. Um, many of them travel to Idaho from South America to, to work as shepherds for a, a good chunk of the year, uh, often from Peru and Chile. Uh, Chile. One article describes their work this way. Herders work for pay that on a per-hour basis is closer to volunteering than it is to earning minimum wage. This is talking about modern-day shepherds. They are required to be on call 24 hours per day, seven days per week, living in small campers without electricity, running water, or a bathroom. How many of you have been kind of up in the high country of Idaho and seen kind of a sheep herder's wagon? Yeah, quite a few hands have gone up. They don't look like, it's not like a fifth-wheel RV typically, right? It's... They, they look like something from a different era. They often look like what you'd expect to be pulled on the Oregon Trail 150 years ago. They tend to be very simple, and they live in those for months and months out of the year. It's difficult work, uh, and yet, um, compared to the wages they could be making in their home countries doing similar work, they make about three times as much here, and so it's, it's worth it for, for many of them to, to come. Life of a shepherd hasn't changed much in these 2,000 years. It tends to still be done by the poor, um, on the margins of society, kind of living outside the cities. It's difficult work. That was the same way it was there. But we also know this. Shepherding is used throughout Scripture to describe the care and leadership of people. Describing the, the work of God himself as he shepherds his people, describing the work of kings and priests as they shepherd people, describing Jesus himself as the good shepherd, describing the ongoing practice and responsibilities of pastors and elders. And so we have to keep that in mind as well, thinking of passages like this. This is in Genesis 48, 15. Jacob here near the end of his life blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. What a rich statement as he nears the end of his life. Say, the Lord has, has been my shepherd to this very day, all my life. It's not what we'd love to be able to say at the end of our days. And that's not something that we do. It's a recognition of what the Lord has done. That he continues to shepherd our souls all the days of our life. As Jeremiah 31.10, near the end of it, talked about he who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. As the people were going to be scattered, taken away into exile. Northern kingdom already had the southern kingdom about to be taken away into exile. And, and saying, but, but he's going to, as a shepherd, gather them back and bring them in. Great shepherding work of God. Psalm 23, I likely don't need to remind you of. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So God refers to himself. And believers refer to God as the great shepherd of their souls. This occupation that was primarily done by the poor and a very difficult job. Priests were to shepherd the people and were reprimanded in Ezekiel 34 in a the powerful passage, we won't go through the whole thing now, but just looking at one verse out of it, for their lack of shepherding, 
Son of man, prophesy against, uh, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to these shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? And it goes into to confront them for how they had not been caring for the people. They'd just been concerned for themselves and not as a good shepherd caring for, for, for those that were entrusted to their care. It's quite a contrast to the shepherding work of Jesus who then in John 10 would say of himself, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep as opposed to a, a, a hired hand. He contrasts it with there, who will not do so, but as the good shepherd, he will sacrifice himself for his people. And then in a passage that's a little longer and not, not uh, on the screen, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, after then Jesus' death, as he lays down his life for his sheep, Resurrected, he's building his church. And then in 1 Peter, it's giving instructions then to those who are to, to, to lead the church as, as elders and, and pastors. And the term pastor literally comes from this idea of shepherding. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, I'll just read this for you. It says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. So it's, it's a word to the elders, to the leadership of a church. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So there's a chief shepherd, the good shepherd, and then elders and pastors are called to be under shepherds, not lording responsibility, but proving to be examples, willingly serving. So we get this mixed image, then, is my point. This, this image of a task that is hard and done primarily by the poor and on the outskirts of society, and yet that is the image that the Lord uses to talk about himself and to talk about what true leadership looks like, both by Jesus and then by those who serve underneath him. Those are the people, these shepherds, that this great announcement came to. And however they were viewed, it would have been unlikely to think that these are the candidates that the angels would visit and declare this great news. You think, who, who would have been a more logical choice? Rather than these poor shepherds out in the field, who, who would have been a more logical choice to bring this announcement to? Maybe the the high priest is the religious leader. The scribes who were the teachers and were supposed to kind of know the word and, and should anticipate this. The Pharisees who were the rule keepers and the enforcers of the law and their very strict interpretation of it. The Sanhedrin, which was a, a ruling council of 70 elders of the people. All, all of these from a human perspective would, would make more sense that the announcement would come to them because then they could spread the news very efficiently. They were the powerful. They were the influential. And yet that's not what happened. The announcement comes to, to these poor shepherds. Can't help but think of the passage that we studied at, at length in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 a few months ago when we were just starting our series on 1 Corinthians. And if you remember, as a way to 
confront their spiritual pride, he reminds them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, there are not many of them that were wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But as he gets to in verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And he goes on to talk about God often works this way so that people cannot boast in their position and, and privilege and might and wisdom, but it shows that God works through those whom he chooses to. And so these shepherds are just one more in a long line of examples of that. One more example of the way in Luke chapter 1, verse 52, when Mary recognized this, this good news that she'd been told that she was going to bear this child uh, by the Holy Spirit. And she, she praises God for this. And as part of that, in her, her song, she says, He has brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who were, were humble. This, this great reversal. And so we see it in these, these figures of these shepherds. We see God working through those that would maybe not be expected. We often talk about, you know, what, what do we want in uh, disciples today, followers of Christ today? And you maybe have heard the acronym, we want, we want fat disciples. Have you heard that before, right? Of faithful, available, teachable. The acronym FAT, right? Faithful, available, teachable. Everything we see about these other religious leaders in the New Testament, of the Pharisees and the scribes, the high priests, we don't see those attributes, of being, being faithful to the Lord, of being available, of being teachable, certainly not teachable. And yet the little glimpse we get of these shepherds uh, appears to be just those things. They were available, they were teachable, they were receptive to this message. So as we look back at the passage, these angels then, initially one, appears to them. Verse 9, suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. I always like to point this out as you read this. What do you, what do you picture? Our, our stereotype of angels is so far often from the biblical description. You know, we, we think of these chubby babies with little wings on, perhaps a feminine figure of some type. And yet, over and over again, when angels appear to people, it's they're terribly frightened, right, <laughs> is, is the description we get. It's, it's fear. There's these beings that radiate the, the glory of God as they appear. The glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of God is a, is a prominent theme throughout this whole passage. The glory of the Lord shines around them in verse 9. In verse 14, they declare glory to God in the highest. In verse 20, the shepherds go back glorifying and praising God. The glory of God talks about God's worth, his, his might, his, his glory that radiates out. And as, as image bearers, we can, can see it and reflect it back as we glorify him and marvel at, at who he is. And so that's what they see here. These humble shepherds out in the fields. But they're told, verse 10, do not be afraid. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, and put your eyes there, what, what must be one of the most beautiful statements in all of Scripture. 
Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Just because those words end up in so many of our songs, don't, don't overlook and rush past what they're saying. Can't imagine a more deeply loaded and significant statement in all of Scripture. Because it brings you good news. Gospel, of course, means good news. Good news of great joy, which will be for all people. Not not just these privileged elites, not not even just these Jewish shepherds, but, but in fulfillment of what God had promised Abraham long ago, that from him would come one who would bless the nations. So this one that is being announced here is going to be good news for not just the Jewish people, but for, for all people, as the doors are flung wide for, for all to come. This one who is looking at the three terms used of him in verse 11, who is a savior, as we read in Matthew one twenty one a couple weeks ago, Mary, Joseph was told about Mary. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, their personal offenses against a perfect and holy God. He will save his people from that. The Savior, in verse 11 it says, is Christ the Lord. Christ means it's the Messiah. It more literally means the anointed one. Anointing was a symbolic way of recognizing kings. So it's so going back to the, the intro of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, there was anointing oil that was used of, of kings and queens throughout this 900-year tradition. And it was always made in a certain way with oils of orange and rose and cinnamon and musk and ambergis. It was the original essential oil probably, right? Um, usually a batch was made to last for several coronations, even though they would be often decades apart. But in uh, 1941, during World War II, the place that was housing this oil was, was destroyed by a bomb, so they had to make a new batch for Queen Elizabeth here uh, to anoint her with. And it was a, considered the most sacred part of the ceremony. In fact, my understanding is that's the only part that wasn't televised, is when they anointed her with this, with this oil. This is a tradition going back long into the Old Testament as well, and referring to Christ here as the, the Christ means the anointed one, this anointed king, anointed and set apart to the Lord. So it's our Savior who is Christ the Lord. The Lord. We mentioned last time, the wise men came, and in Matthew 2, verse 2, they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? King at his birth, in John 18, 37, near the end of his life, Jesus is asked by Pilate, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say correctly, I'm a king, for to this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. He makes clear to the two that his kingdom is not of this world, and yet he is born king. To this he has been born. And so the shepherds likewise are told, Yes, there's a, a Caesar that is ruling over this whole area. Yes, there's wicked King Herod. And yet, this one who has been born 
is the Lord. Not, a, not just a baby to be adored. And that's good for us to remember. We can think back at Christmas of this baby in a manger. Babies are safe. I mean, they're scary to hold because you're afraid you're going to drop them, right? But they're not threatening. They don't, I was going to say they don't demand much of you, but every mother would probably say they demand a lot. But you know, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's a baby. And yet Jesus was, was born king of the Jews. He lived this life. We see him now as our savior listed here, the anointed one, the, the Lord to be followed. But why is this good news? Verse 10, the angel said, I bring you good news of great joy. This good news hinged then on the identity and the mission of this child. As we'll read later in 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and one mediator, one go-between, bridging this gap also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, not to take away from his deity here, he is both God and man, but emphasizing here that in his humanity, he's able to be this perfect mediator. That is why this is such great news. Our sin has estranged us from God by our very nature and then carried out by our actions and attitudes. And there would be no hope for us to remedy that on our own. But this is good news because this child not remain a child, but would for 33 years perfectly obey in all the ways that we completely fail and then die on our behalf so that those who trust in him as Savior and Lord are, are brought near to God, are forgiven. That's why this is such great news. They're told in verse 12 how to find this baby, where they'll find him. Verse 13 This one angel then was joined by others. Suddenly it says there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. This is probably not how these shepherds expected their night to go, right? And yet they're told this news. From one angel that terrified them now to a multitude. They've been hearing this message, and then they act on it. The shepherds immediately went then to find the baby and to share what they had heard. They didn't waste any time. And look at verse 15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem. Then verse 16, they came in a hurry What a contrast to what we saw last week, if you are here with us last week. I mean, the the Magi, the wise men, we have every indication that they came as as soon as they saw this star. So this this is later in the narrative. Jesus is perhaps two years old by that point. But but they came as soon as they saw the star. But there were scribes and and priests who heard about this as well in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, five miles away, who who didn't seem to bother to to come. And, And yet... Yet these shepherds, as soon as they hear this announcement, they they hurry, they go straight to Bethlehem. And they found their way, it says in verse 16, to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in a manger. Verse 17, when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. 
That's what we do with momentous events. We look closely and we tell others. Look closely and we, we tell others. They were, in a sense, the first New Testament evangelists sharing this good news that they had been told to all who were there and who were listening. And who knows, perhaps throughout the city um, that very night they might have been. I love Mary's response here also, verse 19. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Just picture her treasuring, holding on to this good news, and and pondering. She's continuing to think. What's interesting is at least least three times in these early chapters in Matthew and Luke, this news like this comes to Mary. And each time she responds kind of in the same way. It says, you know, when the angel first brings the news to her that she's going to carry this child in Luke chapter 1, verses 28 to 35, she's, she's amazed. And then here, this news is verified by another source as these shepherds come and tell her what they've just been told, and she, she treasures it and ponders it. And then the passage we're going to see next week, when they take little baby Jesus to, to the temple to, to dedicate him, Simeon there tells a similar message like this, and it says that they're amazed by it. Isn't that kind of the way truth sinks in? Like over and over again we need to hear something and eventually it kind of sinks in and you can sort of see that happening here with Mary through these many sources. The same message keeps coming back to her and over and over again she's amazed, she's pondering, she's treasuring what she's being told. And the shepherds, verse 20, went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as been told them. They worshipped, in a sense. Maybe with song, maybe not, but they worshipped. They, they glorified God. They, they praised him. They recognized his, his glory through what was happening here. They valued it. They celebrated it. That should be our response to good news as well. In fact, that's why we sing at the, at the end of a service, not just at the beginning. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. We don't do it just because we want our services to be kind of symmetrical, right? Like pray at the beginning, pray at the end, sing at the beginning, sing at the end with a message right in the middle. It's not just to kind of have a night, nice package like that. It's because worship is a response to revelation. It's a response to what we learn about God. And, and so for me, Sunday after Sunday, my favorite time to sing, honestly, is, is after the message. Whether I'm the one preaching or not, if I'm the one listening, because it's a chance to, to respond in worship to what we've heard. I love to sing after the message, because it's what worship is. It's recognizing God's, God's worth and glorifying him because of it. I came across a definition of, of worship this week that reflects that. I appreciate it. This is by a guy named Bruce Leafblad. He wrote this. Worship is communion with God in which believers, by grace, center their minds, attention, and hearts, affection on the Lord, humbly glorifying God in their response to his greatness and his word. It's a loaded sentence, and so kind of working backwards from this, it's in response to his greatness, which is what the shepherds are seeing here, right? They're hearing this message 
from the angels. And they're going in and they're seeing it fulfilled in this Christ child. And they've been told this is the Savior, the, the Lord. And in response to that, they are glorifying God. And as we do that, we, we respond to the gospel, we respond to the word. A new, new facet of God we're learning about, or a facet of God we're reminded about, glorify God in response to that. We, we do that by centering our minds, attention, and heart affection on the Lord. It's not merely an emotional response. That's how worship, I think, sometimes can be distorted into thinking of it as just as a way to stir up emotion through certain songs, through certain lyrics, through a right environment. It, it's our heart's attention, but it's also our affection. So it, it, emotions are not to be removed from it. We're to to strive for worship that engages both our, our hearts and our minds. And it's all done by, by grace, in which God graciously reveals himself to us. So these shepherds end up as a, as a small picture of this in their response. What do we do with this passage? How can we apply this? So I'm going to give you just a couple things that, that fit with sort of what we've seen all along, but just to circle back to them. Shepherds are a reminder to us that God often draws people that society overlooks. God often draws people that society overlooks. These are the, the humble, the poor, not, the, not the, those that we would expect to get the attention. And yet these angels chose to reveal this good news to them. God is accessible to all of us. And isn't that remarkable? We saw last week these wise men, these academics coming. And so perhaps that represents kind of one strata of people. But now we, we get these day laborers who, who are on the margins coming as well. It's good news for all people, as we read in here. If we had time, we could look through the, the genealogies represented in Matthew and Luke, and those genealogies themselves remind us of this truth. There's a quote that I love that says, the, the people that Jesus came from tells us about the people that he came for. The people he came from tell us about the people he came for. And as we look at the people that he came from, as we look at those lists of names, that when it's time for your Bible reading to start in Matthew, you'll probably just kind of skim, skim through, right? <laughs> So-and-so begot so-and-so, and you kind of read through it kind of quick. But as you go back and you look at those figures, we see, we see Jews and Gentiles. We see men and women. We see some that the story of their sin is really close to the surface in the biblical narrative. We see David and Bathsheba. We see Rahab. We see liars and deceivers. And all of those God used to bring about this perfect Messiah who would die for, for all of them and for, for all of us. The people he came from tells us about the people he came for. And certainly included in that are those that society may overlook. And the second thing would just be a reminder to entrust yourself to the good shepherd. Perhaps the Lord chose to weave shepherds into this narrative in such a prominent way as a way to remind us again of his shepherding care and the good shepherding care of Jesus. And so we read passages in addition to the ones we saw earlier, like 1 Peter 2.25, 
You were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Even if you've never handled sheep, this probably makes sense to you just from what we know about sheep. They continually stray. They're unaware of danger. They put themselves in risky situations. And it says that's what we are like. And perhaps you can see yourself in this recently, continually straying, a heart prone to wander, perhaps in ways that have been hidden from others, perhaps in ways that are more obvious and clear. But we're invited always to return to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. And he welcomes us, he calls us, he draws us. The one who will shepherd and guard. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And yet he guards us. Shepherd and guardian of our souls. And then the words of Christ himself in John 10, 14 to 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. If you've trusted in him, you've responded to this free invitation of the gospel, then this is true of you. He, he knows you, wandering heart and all. And he holds you and he laid down his life for you. Trust yourself to his care.